Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Administrative Law and Regulation Practice Group, was recorded on Friday, May 19, 2017, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federal Society members. Welcome to the Practice Group's teleform conference call, as today we discuss the executive order concerning the promulgation and revocation of regulations, the one-in, two-out executive order. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President and General Counsel and Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. Please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. Also, this call is being recorded for possible use as a podcast in the future. We're very pleased to welcome a new guest to Teleform today. He's Thomas Johnson. He's the Deputy Solicitor General from the great state of West Virginia. He's going to give us some opening remarks of about 10 to 15 minutes, but then, as always, we'll be looking to the audience for questions. With that, uh, Tom Johnson, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Dean, and thank you for having me today. Um, I'm I'm here to talk about the uh, President's order on reducing regulation and controlling regulatory costs, also known as the one-in-two-out executive order. And I'm here to talk to you about this because we in the uh, Solicitor General's office in the state of West Virginia are uh, co-leading with the state of Wisconsin an amicus brief on behalf of 14 states total in support of the legality of the president's executive order in a pending legal challenge to the order in federal district court in DC. And I'll get to that in a moment, but first I'd like to uh, give you an overview of what it is that the president's executive order does. The, uh, the basic principle is very simple. Uh, whenever an executive department or agency proposes a new rule, the agency shall, in the notice of proposed rulemaking, identify two existing rules to be repealed. Now, for fiscal year 2017, which is currently in progress, uh, the order specifies that the incremental cost of all new rules, which includes the cost savings for the rules identified to be repealed, shall be $0. And then for fiscal years 2018 and beyond, the order instructs that the director of the Office of Management and Budget within the White House shall identify to agencies, each agency, a total amount of incremental costs that will be allowed for that fiscal year. The agencies, in turn, will then have to annually provide an approximation of the total costs or savings associated with each uh, new uh, rule and repealed rules. And so... The, uh, the cost, the incremental cost of the new rule and then the cost savings of the repealed rules. So the order on its face has several limitations. It does not apply when the repeals would not be permitted by law. It uh, doesn't uh, apply when uh, the rule relates to certain national security functions or when the director of OMB provides an exemption. Now, after the executive order was issued, OMB uh, issued first an interim guidance document and then a final guidance document that provided some additional important caveats concerning the application of the executive order. Uh, first of all, it made clear that the order doesn't apply to the independent agencies. It only applies to those agencies and department, uh, departments directly under the president's control. Uh, the order only applies to what are called significant regulatory actions and significant guidance documents, which are defined as actions with an annual effect on the economy of uh, $100 million or more. And uh, the order does not apply, importantly, to rulemakings that would be required by statute or judicial order. In other words, oftentimes uh, Congress will specify that an agency must enact a rule on a particular topic, 
this order would only be applicable in those cases in which the agency had broad discretion to choose to regulate or not to regulate. And in the course of that, the agencies and departments would need to take into account as part of exercising that discretion, whether or not they could identify uh, two additional rules for repeal that would achieve the cost savings identified by OMB. So that is basically how the order and the guidance work. Um, shortly after the, the order and, and actually the interim guidance came out before even the final guidance uh, was available, <clears throat> a number of groups filed a complaint in federal district court in Washington, D.C. to challenge, essentially mount a facial challenge to both the executive order and the guidance documents. They've since amended their complaint to take into account the, the final guidance, but essentially the claims and theories are the same. Uh, the plaintiffs in the case include the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, Public Citizen, and the communication, uh, Communications Workers of America, and they sued both the president and the heads of all of the relevant departments and agencies. And essentially, uh, the, the complaint or the reason why these organizations claim that they have standing is because they believe that they are going to be impacted by the repealed rules in a variety of different contexts, which they spell out the complaint, uh, and, and that uh, essentially these rules, which are performing, essential, uh, performing in their view, important uh, public policy functions will be repealed for reasons that they believe are unlawful. Uh, so the, uh, the judge in the case is Randolph Moss, who's uh, an Obama appointee. And with respect to the particular legal claims raised by the plaintiffs, uh, there are three principal claims. First is they claim that the order and guidance violate the separation of powers. What they claim is that the president is essentially unilaterally amending statutes that require that rules be enacted pursuant only to those factors that are written into the text of the statute uh, itself. And so, for example, if you take a statute like the Exchange Act, and this is just one example, uh, that requires that uh, fees for certain market products be fair and reasonable, uh, they would say, well, that's the statutory standard and that is the only thing that uh, the agency would have to take into account in, uh, in promulgating rules. You can't uh, superimpose essentially on the statute a requirement that the agency go forth and identify other rules uh, to repeal in, in, the, in, in essentially the same rulemaking. Uh, there was... Um, a particular, a particular, I mean, sort of the among the parade of horribles that are listed in the complaint is the idea that, well, you might even have an agency that is offsetting a rule in one particular statutory context uh, with rules from some completely different statutory context, completely unrelated context. So you'd be making trade-offs between, <clears throat> let's say, mine safety and uh, less uh, environment, more mine safety, less environmental protection. And uh, they claim that that is uh, not, not a permissible uh, way of engaging in rulemaking. And, and in fact, the, uh, the, the final guidance document does address that particular concern and note that th there would have to be, uh, that, that essentially the rules ought to be as closely related as possible and that you would need to have special permission in order to sort of do a, a cross-agency approach to, to uh, fulfilling the requirements of the order. So we have, um, we have separation of powers as the first claim. The second is that, the, uh, is that the, the order and guidance supposedly violate the president's 
uh, duties under the take care clause that he is, is not taking care that the laws be faithfully executed if he's essentially putting this, this sort of break on the regulatory process by, by forcing agencies to consider this one in two out requirement. And then the third claim is that it violates the APA, essentially the Administrative Procedure Act, essentially that it's arbitrary and capricious. And as I read uh, the complaint, I mean, there are a number of reasons why they claim that, that just the very notion of, of this sort of bright line rule of having one new rule being offset by two rules to be identified to be repealed, that that is just completely arbitrary and unmoored to any uh, sort of, of the, the statutory goals and, and purposes of each of these various enabling statutes. And, and also, uh, hearkening back to what I said before, that it essentially requires agencies to engage in, engage in sort of arbitrary trade-offs, things that are incommensurable, like, like mine safety and the environment. Well, how do you measure one against the other and determine that one is in the public interest and that you really don't need the others? And so that's sort of the crux of their APA claim. Now, the United States has uh, moved to dismiss the complaint, and primarily on the grounds that the claims are premature, although they do get into the merits a little bit. The motion to dismiss is focused on the notion that the claims are not ripe because the order has not yet uh, been implemented. It actually hasn't been carried out with respect to any particular rulemaking, and therefore there is no allegations and there can be no evidence that any of the named plaintiffs at this point are actually aggrieved by the order, and uh, that there certainly there certainly must be lawful applications of the order. It certainly must be cases in which uh, an agency can decide at the same time that they're going to uh, enact one new rule and uh, take two others off the books. And so we should wait for particular applications, and, and those could then be decided. The legality of the order and the guidance could then be decided on sort of a case-by-case -case basis. So about a week after the United States filed its motion, uh, we filed an amicus brief, again, on behalf of 14 states, uh, us co-leading with Wisconsin. And uh, our interest in this case stemmed from the fact that over the past eight years, there has been an enormous glut and, and growth in, uh, in the, the number of rules enacted and uh, the growth of the administrative state. A lot of those rules have had negative impacts on the states in some cases unlawfully coerce the states to uh, comply with or to exceed to federal policy. In West Virginia in particular, we've been burdened significantly by a number of rules enacted by the Environmental Protection Agency over the past eight years that we have uh, challenged in court and successfully challenged in court. And so the sort of pro-regulatory direction of the past eight years had a specific and deleterious impact on the states in that the change in policy and the specific policy embodied in this new executive order was sort of a reasonable means or reasonable first step to scale that back or to at least have agencies consider the costs of their actions holistically before imposing new regulatory burdens on the states and, and, on, the, and on their citizens. Uh, and the way we approached the brief, we wanted obviously to say something that was different from what the motion to dismiss said. And so we took our cues from the fact that the complaint raised a separation of powers challenge and the take care challenge, and both of them essentially went to the question of what is the president's power in this area. And so what we did was we took an historical approach, and we argued that both, both as a matter of constitutional interpretation and as a matter of history, at least with respect to the growth of the modern administrative state, that the executive order was both consistent with 
the Constitution and with the President's powers as, as the Chief Executive of the government, as well as with the approach to rulemaking and prior executive orders that have been adopted by presidents of both parties since the New Deal. And so starting first with a little bit of the constitutional theory, the theory essentially is one of a unitary executive that ultimately the president has the final say on setting a policy direction for the executive branch, including setting national economic policy for the country. And that extends uh, at least to all of the departments and agencies under his control. And this is sort of an easier question because this particular order and guidance excludes the independent agencies. And so it's essentially a component of the sort of the undisputed power of the president to remove the heads of departments and agencies at will. If he has that power to remove his subordinates at will, he certainly has the power to set policy for the departments. And that's been recognized by the DC circuit in a case called Sierra Club, which was helpful for us to use in our brief. And in fact, it would be impossible for the president to coordinate and to set national policy unless there was some mechanism for him to exercise cross-agency control rather than having each agency be sort of an isolated island and, and doing its own thing. And this is where it helps that we're excluding from the analysis for present purposes the mandatory rules, cases in which a Congress or court is demanding that an agency do take particular action. Uh, where there is discretion, the basic premise here is that you know the president can sort of exercise discretion holistically and uh, and uh, set set policies and set certain a certain regulatory agenda for each of the uh, executive agencies and departments. So um, if you look at our brief, we we sort of trace uh, the evolution of this notion of centralized executive control over the administrative state uh, from Roosevelt. Uh, through the uh, the creation of the executive office of the president to uh, essentially the creation of the office of management and budget and especially the uh, creation of OIRA within OMB as a as a sort of centralized uh, group within the White House responsible for reviewing significant regulatory actions and for reviewing the regulatory impact uh, that uh, that that particular uh, rules will have on the economy, uh, the impact that particular rules will have on the states. And uh, if you take a look at the executive orders that presidents from at least Gerald Ford to the present have issued, they all on some level are instructing agencies, uh, cross-agency, to take costs into account and to take other factors such as the effect on state and local governments into account. And this is all in furtherance of uh, this notion of a, of, of a, a centralized rule of review and rulemaking within the executive branch. And there were two orders in particular that we thought were important or, or, or similar in kind and type to the one in two out order and were helpful in terms of demonstrating why this, this is in kind really nothing new. And, and the first was one that was enacted by, uh, issued by President Clinton, in which he uh, directed the agencies to eliminate 50% of their internal civilian management regulations within three years. I mean, this to me has the same sort of bright line rule problem that the plaintiffs are complaining about in their one and two out order. I mean, uh, you know, if, 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 you can't have a rule like that. I mean, you could ask the same questions. Where does 50% come from? Where does three years come from? It, it's sort of the same. It, it, it's sort of this rule of thumb that 
uh, furthers a cost-cutting objective, and uh, it's but it's a very bright line. And then uh, we also highlighted uh, executive orders from President Obama, who did not uh, have sort of a bright line rule, but nevertheless did have a direction to agencies to review and repeal those rules that were quote outmoded, insufficient, uh, ineffective, or excessively burdensome. So this also bears similarity to the one in two out order, even though it's not sort of a bright line rule, it is a standard and it is a direction from the president to the agencies to engage in this sort of uh, holistic uh, review of regulatory burdens. And it's always helpful when you can, uh, you can um, cite uh, Cass Sunstein, for example, in support of your proposition that he is uh, he is the head of uh, was the head of President Obama's OMB, and he wrote an op-ed that was actually uh, somewhat supportive of the rule. It wasn't sort of full-throatedly supportive, but he did say, you know, it, 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 while some people have described the one and two out concept as a little bit gimmicky, that it was essentially a reasonable way to pause after the regulatory growth of the Obama years and to sort of take stock at where we've come and where we're going. And um, even though some people have criticized one in two out as a rule, it really uh, you know, finds its justification in uh, administrative convenience for one thing. I mean, when you talk, when, when you're considering uh, such a vast bureaucracy, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, I think, to effectively implement a uh, sort of mushy standard like you have in the President Obama executive order, what does outmoded mean or inefficient mean? Uh, if, if you institute a, a, a policy that applies across the board, it's certainly easier to administer. And it, it's directional, right? I mean, it, it, it certainly sets forth and implements a deregulatory uh, policy. So, uh, Predictions with respect to this particular lawsuit, always always hard to know, and we do have an Obama appointee as the judge, but it's possible that it could be resolved at the motion to dismiss phase. I do think there's a very strong argument that a facial challenge to this should fail, that there are, at minimum, some constitutional applications of the of the order. And of course, as we argue, we think it's 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 constitutional period. But um, you know, we, we do think it's quite possible this gets thrown out on ripeness grounds. The plaintiffs have already filed a summary judgment motion, but it's likely that uh, we'll see the Department of Justice try to um, stay that pending review of their motion to dismiss. But if the case does proceed, we will certainly, as the states, continue to uh, continue to stay involved. And uh, you know, we'll also look for opportunities to get involved if we see this case uh, and the challenge come up again in an, in an as-applied context, which I think is the the much more likely way in which the rubber is going to hit the road and that you're going to see a court really grapple with uh, the legality of this order. Uh, so Dean, that's, uh, that's what I had by way of uh, preliminary remarks. So I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you so much. Uh, in a moment, we'll all hear an announcement that will say the floor mode is on. After you hear that announcement, if you have a question for our guest, push the star button and then the pound button on your telephone. So once again, if you have a question for our expert, you need to push the star button and then the pound button on our telephone. 
a reminder while we wait to see who rings in uh, to check your calendar or check uh, our website rather and check check your emails for uh, announcement of teleform calls that might be taking place on Monday or Tuesday in response to decisions being made by the court. Uh, of course, if you have a question today, push the star button, then the pound button on your telephone. I'll get us started here as we wait to see if anybody rings in, Tom. Um, is there something, uh, maybe you can help me understand, there's something magical um, or special about a written executive order? Uh, it certainly, um, I mean, it has the benefits of providing some clarity to the extent that it's written down and there's a record of it. Uh, it provides transparency in the sense that it's a, uh, a publicly available document. But I can't imagine that a president couldn't have a meeting of his cabinet privately and instruct every cabinet member, either one-on-one -on -one or all together, that for every regulation um, you, you put forward, you have to get rid of two regulations. That's the policy of this administration. Go forth. Uh, and if he can do that, maybe he can't, but if he can do that in a private session as a direction to uh, his his uh, agency heads, why can't he do it in a written order? Is that part of this case? Yeah, I think that's a good way of, of putting it, Dean. And obviously, you know, we're seeing uh, sort of a very interesting uh, uh, group of lawsuits springing up all over the country about exactly what a number of President Trump's executive orders mean. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're seeing this right now in the Sanctuary Cities case out in California and, uh, you know, in, in connection with uh, the, the recent religious liberties exemption executive order that is uh, being challenged, uh, was, just, was just recently promulgated and challenged. There is this question as to whether uh, what these executive orders are doing is actually uh, setting forth binding rules on the agencies or whether they're more just sort of statements of policy or, uh, or sort of use of the bully pulpit. Uh, and uh, and whether they're really necessary or legally binding at all, and I think it, it definitely it proceeds. Uh, it definitely depends on the on the on the actual executive order in question. Certainly, I think we saw a lot of abuse of the executive order uh, process under President uh, Obama. I think that um, in this case, the executive order is in fact appropriate. Uh, for the reasons that I described, I mean, it's very much in a long line of traditions of executive orders relating to uh, executive centralized control of the regulatory state. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I'm sure that the president can uh, communicate these sorts of commands informally, and I think it's all part of his uh, it's it's really mostly a political check because I think all of the all of the executive heads understand they're ultimately responsible for uh, responsible to and serve at the pleasure of the president. But I do think there is something in having a formal direction to all of the agencies and a formal process that you can carry out uh, throughout the government. And I also don't think that we should minimize the uh, the, the, the sort of bully pulpit. Um, aspect of this order or others, seeing as I think it is important, particularly given the president's campaign promises on regulatory reform and in other areas, that the people uh, who voted for him see that uh, he is actually committed to carrying these policies out. And I think, I think, uh, and, and that essentially there's you know new sheriff in town and, and a new sort of uh, regulatory direction for the federal government. And I think this order accomplishes that. 
Yeah, I, I see that. Um, and once again, to our audience, if you have a question, push the star button, then the pound button on your phone. Our lines are wide open. I guess what I was suggesting is whether or not the, the, the folks who filed the lawsuit here, are, are do they have to allege as part of their case that the president just doesn't have this power? Um, that if he doesn't have the power to write this down as an executive order, he also does not have the power to individually or as a group instruct his his agency heads that they're to uh, for every regulation they they promulgate they're to get rid of two. Um, yeah, that that, that's a it that yeah. makes complete that makes complete sense, and I think uh, I think they would certainly say that um, with respect to doing that at the group level, that that would be impermissible, whether formal or informal, because it's sort of, I read their complaint as at, at root, challenging the entire notion of uh, sort of cross-agency review of rules. I think for any of their claims to make sense, uh, what, what they uh, are, are saying at root is that you can't make trade-offs as between different statutory regimes, and you can't consider uh, factors that aren't clear on the uh, on the on the face of of the statute, and uh, you know we we know that um, you know that can't be completely right because there are a lot of cases, and uh, certainly in the in the environmental context in recent years, in which the Supreme Court has said that consideration of cost in particular is sort of a, has become a principle of of reasoned rulemaking. I think it's a, a decision by Justice Scalia that, that used that, that formulation. So even when um, a, a statute does not specifically or explicitly provide for cost-benefit analysis, it's, it's inherently irrational for an agency uh, not to take into account whether the purported benefits of a rule are outweighing its cost. So really the only further question that this executive order in this case presents is whether the uh, president can perform this task holistically as opposed to, as you suggested, Dean, maybe uh, only reaching out one-on-one -on -one to particular agency heads with respect to particular statutory regimes. And I think there's strong support for the holistic approach from uh, the behavior of presidents uh, starting from Roosevelt to the present, as well as just the, the theory of the unitary executive. Right. Very good. Uh, once again, if you have a question, push the star button and the pound button on your telephone. We do have one question pending, so let's take our first call. Hi, this is uh, Daniel Shapiro. I'm a, a third-year law student at uh, Antonin Scalia Law School. I was just wondering um, if you thought that this really was, it seems like you are insinuating that it really is just an attempt to um, demean executive directive authority over the administrative state as a whole. And it seems uh, that there might be some, you know, a connection to what the court did in Massachusetts versus EPA, where it does mm -hmm. attempt to unmoor the presidential directive authority from uh, the administrative state itself. Uh, so I guess my question is, um, where exactly um, uh, would this uh, directive authority be located? Um, would it be the executive vesting clause, or do you take a more holistic approach to Article 2? Uh, locating it in like a combination of the take care clause and the uh, written opinions clause. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, of course, this is always tricky because unlike the uh, enumerated powers that you have with respect to Congress in Article 1, 
there's all this literature about what exactly does it mean to have uh, to sort of vest the executive power uh, in, a, in, a, in a single person, and obviously those those vesting clauses are written uh, very differently, where it, it seems as if it's not just sort of a a, uh, a number of delegated legislative powers that that that, uh, that Congress can enjoy, but it's sort of the entire concept of executive power on the federal level is vested in the chief executive. So I think that um, I think that I would locate that in in sort of the, the concept of executive power as well as the vesting clause. I think it's I think it's uh, you know and and then as as sort of set forth by um, by the Supreme Court, and I think it's Myers v. United States is just the concept of being able to remove uh, remove the agency heads at will. I mean I think that that is uh, you know essentially. A, a power whose purpose is to ensure that you don't have sort of a balkanized executive. I mean that what, what you that what you have is a uh, an executive that's ultimately um, uh, accountable to the president. And of course, you know that's tested in any number of ways uh, through through the concept of independent agencies to what um, you know what we're seeing in the news today with respect to the roles of the FBI and the roles of special counsels and things and the like and these are sort of part of ongoing debates but I think that uh, at least with respect to uh, the notion of centralized regulatory control for executive agencies and departments directly responsible to the president uh, I think that there's, there's a fairly unbroken tradition uh, and that, that's sort of what our brief tries to um, tries to uh, communicate. Once again, if you Thank have a question, you. yep, you're welcome. If you have a question, push the star button and the pound button on your telephone. Our lines are wide open once again. Um, while we wait to see if somebody else rings in, let me ask you a question. You might have addressed this in your remarks in chief, and if you did, I apologize. I, I was a bit distracted by some business here in my office, but how is this executive order going to interact with a, uh, with a regulatory budget type executive order that caps the costs overall? Has there been any discussion of that, or is that part of this case at all? Yeah, that that's a very good question, and I have not seen that as part of this case. Um, I, I suppose what what may happen is that the OMB will take those budget caps into account in terms of setting sort of the incremental cost targets for each agency for fiscal year, fiscal years 2018 and beyond, which this executive order does require uh, the OMB to do. And so you'd like to think that there will be some sort of centralized oversight of uh, the executive budget in that regard. Uh, but um, but no, I mean it's not entirely clear how it plays out, uh, Dean. In in that regard, and I think there are a number of unanswered questions here that 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 only time will tell. I mean, another one that occurred to me as I was preparing for this is that I mean, really, on the face of the executive order, all that it requires is that an agency identify two potential rules for repeal for each uh, new rule that's proposed. There's no obvious mechanism uh, for actually ensuring that that happens. The, the guidance says, well, ideally agencies should, uh, uh, you know, do these repeals close in time so that you're actually um, promulgating the new rule and noticing the repeal of the two rules at the same time. And of course, there is this requirement that annually you sort of submit accounting with an approximation of, uh, of cost savings and new costs imposed. And so, uh, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, we'll have to see how uh, how well the agencies actually comply with it. And uh, you know, there was a lot of this. Uh, you know, I think a lot of disappointment. Maybe maybe people expected it, but um, you know, I mean, the 
President Obama in um, uh, promulgating a uh, similar regulatory reform order at the start of his presidency uh, required sort of periodic reports from the agencies on compliance. And I think what you largely saw how that played out, it was it was the compliance that was sort of token compliance. I mean, they, uh, you know, they would they would cha champion the uh, the repeal of certain you know, very limited rules with, uh, you know, and sometimes they, they'd be on, on, on topics that, you know, it would be so laughably outdated, you'd sort of agree, oh, well, of course, you know, this rule should be repealed. But meanwhile, they're enacting, you know, huge regulatory programs, Obamacare being a notable example, which, which dwarfs in terms of regulatory costs and complexity anything that was being repealed. So, um, it, it goes back to what you said, Dean. I mean, you know, these things do look great on paper as sort of the onset of a presidency, and uh, you know, time will tell through the implementation uh, how well these these actually work in practice. Very good. Once again, our lines are wide open. If you have a question, push the star button and a pound button on your telephone. I'll ask uh, another question while we wait to see if somebody else rings in. And that is, um, you mentioned sort of an arbitrary and capricious standard, or the, we're testing sort of the limits of presidential authority here. Could could a president sign an executive order, for example, or otherwise direct agencies? You know, I have determined that regulations are good, uh, universally so, or at least on the whole, the more regulations, the better. Every one of you must promulgate 10 regulations a year or 20 regulations a year. Is that within the president's authority uh, to to mandate something like that or direct something like that? Or well, I think you know, I, I think I'd probably make the same case that it it would be premature to uh, potentially premature to evaluate the validity of something like that on its face. The mm -hmm. way that you've described it, though, it would seem like it would be challenging to apply that in a way that was consistent with those principles of reason rulemaking that I'm talking about. It's not what what makes this, I think, a workable rule is not so much that it's just saying generally less regulation or more regulation, but that it requires sort of a sensitive balancing of, of benefits and costs and, and, and sort of a sort of a holistic look at that. So I think if what you're saying is just more regulation, more regulation, at some point I suspect that would bounce up against some pretty significant uh, limitations in that are that are intentionally sort of baked into the APA. I mean really really the APA was designed to limit the power of federal of, of, of federal agencies, right? I mean, it was designed to get around, uh, and we can argue whether it successfully did that or not as a matter of initial constitutional interpretation, but so, so sort of was, was intended to address the delegation problem uh, mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that you otherwise would have from Congress giving all of this regulatory authority to the agencies. This is, well, hold on a minute. You know, you need to make sure that uh, what you do is not arbitrary and capricious, that it's otherwise consistent with law, that your factual findings are not clearly erroneous and the like. And so th there is, I would argue, sort of an inherently, if not deregulatory bent to what the APA was designed to do, at least sort of a, a, a bent that requires sort of a critical eye uh, that uh, uh, when uh, when an agency enacts a new regulation. And I think, sort of from my perspective, thankfully in the courts, especially with um, the, the ascendance of uh, Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, I mean, we're starting to see some judges and justices take really seriously the APA's instruction that courts 
look at these rules and determine are they in fact consistent with law, in other words, consistent with uh, federal statutes. And so we might see uh, some more teeth uh, being um, applied to APA review in the near future. Very good. I'm going to make a final call for questions. If you have a question, now's the time. Push the star button, then the pound button on your telephone. We do have one question, so let's go to our next caller. Hello, my name is Jeff Johnson. I'm a practitioner in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and giving your view of the case. Um, I had sort of a more basic question. I know you touched on it very briefly at the beginning, but what is the actual interest of the state of West Virginia in this particular case? It seems like this is more a matter of you know, federal law between separations of powers, between Article One and Article II, um, matters of the APA. And it seems that without like a specific application um, of this order to a federal rule that affects, you know, interests within West Virginia. But I don't know. I just don't see exactly what the interests of of the Amici are here. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, thank you for that question. It sort of raises a, uh, you know, I guess to answer that, I'll sort of take a step back and, and talk a little bit about, um, you know, my own office and sort of the evolution of these state solicitors, uh, general offices, and state attorney general's offices. Uh, I think, you know, as as the national government has uh, has accumulated more and more power, and as it uh, continues to enact policies of national scope and that uh, sort of in, in derogation of some of the powers that used to be reserved to the states, I mean, you, you've, what you've seen, at least what you saw during the Obama years and what you're starting to see now on the other side uh, with respect to Democratic AGs uh, as, as President Trump has taken power is, is sort of a, a renewed uh, sense of federalism and, uh, and sort of a renewed interest in, in multi-state uh, challenges to a number of, of, of different presidential directives or, or, on the other hand, sort of multi-state support for presidential directives. And I think this this follows in part from the fact of how, uh, you know, the practice of a number of federal district courts, and we saw it for certain rules during the uh, excuse me during the Obama years, and now again uh, in the first few months of the Trump presidency, of issuing uh, nationwide injunctions of various national policies that have effects on the states. And so, you know, to, to some extent, uh, you know, all politics is local. To some extent, it's it's national, and, and more and more and more so. And so, uh, you know, the states are actively looking for opportunities to get involved where they think that there is a specific interest in either ensuring the legality of a of a of a national policy or challenging it. And really, I mean, this someone mentioned earlier in the call, Massachusetts and EPA. I mean, that was that was uh, one of the very first of these, and that was sort of a, a, a challenge by a number of Democratic uh, AGs to attempt to compel the EPA to uh, regulate greenhouse gases and make endangerment findings with respect to certain greenhouse gases. And so this, is, this has been sort of a phenomenon of the past 15 to 20 years. And, and in particular, with respect to this, this specific executive order, um, you know, I mean, I can only speak for West Virginia, and, and I imagine other states had a similar experience. You know, uh, West Virginia was very hard hit, for example, by the, uh, the clean power plan uh, that, uh, that President Obama uh, and, and the and the Obama era EPA enacted and um, and uh, you know that that rule, uh, if it were found lawful, would require states to put certain plans into effect uh, that um, that would essentially and we made this argument in court essentially commandeer the state uh, the state governments, but at least you know require them to 
essentially come up with plans that would uh, implement this energy uh, trading regime that the Obama EPA put forth in the Clean Power Plan. And so, I, I mean, the concern here or the thought is that better cost management of regulations at the federal level, more attention to the trade-offs of costs and benefits at the federal level will ultimately inure to the benefits of the states because it will force federal agencies to put the brakes on, force them to carefully consider their actions uh, before uh, imposing these sorts of burdensome regulations. And one thing we do note in the brief, and I think I touched on it briefly, is at least two prior uh, executive orders, I think one of them was a uh, President Clinton executive order, explicitly instructs federal agencies to consider the effect on state and local governments. And that is just another example of uh, sort of a holistic approach to rulemaking that presidents have adopted in this context. Uh, I guess I will make another final call for questions since we got a question in response to the other. Uh, that is, if you have a question, now's the time. Push the star button, then the pound button on your telephone. I believe, Tom Johnson, we have had our final question. We've got a couple minutes left. Uh, let me give you a, a chance to uh, express any final thoughts and maybe talk about the, the road ahead, if you could. Sure. Uh, happy to do that. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the road ahead on this is just to sort of be vigilant, at least with respect to this particular litigation, see how it plays out. Uh, and uh, continue. I mean, part of my job and part of the job that uh, part of the fun part of this job is that, uh, you know, we're always sort of on the lookout uh, for new opportunities to be involved where it makes sense for the states. And so uh, you have to you have to monitor litigation. And so uh, where the rubber's going to hit the road here is when uh, agencies actually start implementing this order and you'll probably see specific challenges to particular applications of it. I mean, another great example recently is, you know, Congress is finally starting to make use of the Congressional Review Act. And so all of a sudden on the on the Democratic side, you're seeing challenges to the constitutionality of the Congressional Review Act, raising separation of powers challenges to that. And so this is just one other example of it. I think there's going to be a lot of very interesting uh, litigation concerning the federal regulatory state that's going to come up in the next few years, and, and we'll be watching it. And, uh, you know, I'd like to make, a, I guess, one final pitch, if it's okay, Dean, because, you know, I know that there were some law students on, on the phone today. And, uh, you know, if, you, if anyone on the phone is interested in state SG work, I mean, we, we are currently hiring and we're always sort of looking for new talent. And, uh, you know, you do get to do a lot of interesting stuff like uh, participating in uh, this high-profile high litigation and considering a lot of these very uh, interesting constitutional issues. And so, uh, you know, if you have any interest in that at all, please feel free to reach out uh, to me. I'll give you my email address is uh, tjohnson at wvago.gov. That's tjohnson at wvago.gov. And I look forward to hearing from you. And, uh, Dean, I thank you again for this opportunity. Well, on behalf of the Federal Society and my own behalf, I thank you, Tom Johnson, for uh, outlining this for us. It's very interesting uh, information. I want to thank the audience as well for dialing in and for your questions. A reminder to the audience to check the Federal Society's website for uh, breaking news and, and opinion uh, teleform conference calls early next week. But until that next call, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.